Let me dovetail off that. Maybe you are here today trying to go it alone. You're trying to find God, discover God, figure out a relationship with God, and it's been very much of a solo endeavor for you. Maybe even if you gather in, in a community or a body with other believers on a Sunday like today, you still feel very isolated. Maybe you're here today and you feel like a stranger in, in, in a crowd, so to speak, and it's very isolating that way. Maybe you're here today and you don't feel like you have anything to offer, that there's anything good God is doing in you or about you, and you live maybe at one level with a certain even sense of shame before God or fear before God or something of that nature, or even if it isn't that extreme, you see yourself as unimportant to the team, not like her, not like him. And these are the things that 1 Corinthians is speaking into, especially this, this passage of chapter 12 through 15. We've been going through this um, for the last few weeks and using it as a window to look deeper at the spiritual life and springboarding into that by this passage now that will put on, let me put on the screen for you. It says this, I got it, Kim. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. If you were with us in the winter, we went through Galatians, and Paul brings it, this, this amazing message of the gospel, of what God does for us, to this call to live by the Spirit, because the Spirit of God is given to us and to keep in step with God's Spirit. Think about that for a minute. It's the idea that God is going somewhere and he's looking to take you along. He wants to bring you on a journey. God is not static. God, I find, does not stand Still, he's not an idea or a concept that you master and kind of figure it out and then have a handle on, so to speak, as much as he is a person with a personality who is on a journey and he goes, come on with me. I want a road trip with you. I, wanna, I want you to, to walk alongside of me. I want to talk and I want to laugh and I want to share and I want to build into each other and I want to do this journey with you. That's what the Holy Spirit's looking to do. And so Paul will write in this passage in Galatians, since we live by him that way, keep, keep in step with him. Walk with him. Don't go, ah, no, nah, you go on your own, God, I'm, I'm fine right here. No, don't do that. Don't drag your feet, moping along the journey, feeling like you're being dragged somewhere. No, don't approach a relationship with God that way. It's like he's inviting us to find the joy of what it means to walk with God and the joy and the excitement of where he's looking to take us and going, oh, dive in. Dive in. Walk together with him that way. Because if you are a Christian, if you are in Christ, maybe I should say if Christ is in you, God is birthing something 
in you. Even if you're old, God is birthing something in you. And even if you've been in Christ and Christ in you for a long time, God is still birthing something in you. He's looking to do something in you. He's looking to take you somewhere. God has a plan and a purpose and a future and a destiny for you. Oh, don't miss that. Don't forget that. It's all rooted in that. And one of the things that the Holy Spirit is doing, that he's birthing in you, is something that Galatians will call fruit. The fruit of the outcropping, because that's all it means. The outcropping of what he's looking to birth in you is, well, let me, let me share them with you. Things like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Sounds like a pretty good crop, doesn't it? You know, go to the store and give me a dozen of each of those. Thank you very much. And God gives them wholesale. God gives his fruit, or what's called the fruit of the Spirit, wholesale and in bulk. He doesn't just go around, and and if I can kind of compare it to fruit, like, you know, love, joy, peace, patience, if I can compare these to different kinds of fruit, he doesn't like come up to you and goes, okay, well, here's a coconut, okay, here's a banana, okay, here's a mango. He doesn't just kind of apportion them out singly, singularly to each of you. No, he's giving them in bulk, wholesale, by the crate to each of you. We're supposed to eat a lot of fruit. It's good for a healthy diet. God is manifesting fruit in you. But God does something more. He also gives a special manifestation of his grace in a special way to each of you, singularly. So that while God is simultaneously giving his fruit in bulk to all of you, he is additionally giving you something more. He is giving each of you special, unique manifestations of his spirit, of his grace. And these are often called gifts, spiritual gifts. I like the term because it kind of makes us remember it's like all him, right? He's just giving you a gift, giving you a present. God wants to give you a present. Isn't that kind of cool that God wants to give you presents? Like, I've gotten some good presents in my life. How about you? But I would imagine a present from God has got to kind of like blow every other present I've ever received away. Would you agree? And think about this, that God is looking, not looking, he is. He's giving each of you a present. A gift, something out of the delight of his heart that when he looks at you and understands you and gets to know you and walks alongside you as you walk alongside him goes, this, this, this one is suited. This one is you written all, oh, you are going to light up on this one. 
Oh my gosh, you're going to tell your friends about this one. All right, you are going to be able to use this gift that I am giving you to do things. Oh my goodness. Do you think God says, oh my God? I I don't know. But however he would kind of express that, that that's what God is giving to you. And the point of 1 Corinthians 12 is this. Some of your presents are quite spectacular. I mean, you just look at them and it's like, that is shiny and wrapped really, really well. Some of the presents that God is giving you are going to have a very self-evident, spectacular quality about them that even can cause others to envy them. We've had moments like this. You're gathering around and maybe you were the gift giver to your kids or maybe you're one of the kids receiving it around the Christmas tree, right? And then you see what your brother got. It's like he, he opens the PS4 and I got socks, right? <laughs> and, and you can't just but help going, right? And, and I think sometimes it works that way with the gifts of God. Because some of us get these really spectacular or, or shall we say front of house gifts, that just kind of shine and we go, oh, and the spirit just seems so manifest in them. Others of us, we get socks. We do, the gifts that we get don't seem quite so flashy. Sometimes when we realize the gift that we've received, we might even be let down a little bit. Some are boring or we think they are, kind of seem somewhat mundane. But the point of 1 Corinthians 12 is that no matter what the gift God has given you, all of them are wonderful expressions of his love for you. All of them are important. All of them are essential. And ironically, sometimes the less flashy gifts like socks even prove to be more useful and essential than the exciting and flashy gifts like a PS4 or maybe five, if that is what has been given to you. That all of them have inextricable value to what God is looking to do. All of them are gifts and expressions of what he's doing in you, through you, and among us together. And so today we kind of pick up on that strain of thought. That's where the last few weeks leaves us today. And today we pick up at 1 Corinthians 14. And I'm going to tell you off the bat, it's weird. The first half that we're going to look at today is weird. The next half that we look at next week is just going to tick half of you off. But today we're going to do with the weird. And at first it's going to feel a little bit out of sorts, strange, almost even out of context, almost like this doesn't even belong here. It was a specific issue that was creating some problems in this Corinthian church, people not knowing how to live this out, how to deal with it, even causing some dissension and division among them, causing some interruption and disruption and confusion in their, in their time of worship together, causing distraction and, and, and all of the, well, conflict 
that will often surround times like that. I want to read you this passage today. It comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Here's what it's about. Prophecy and tongues. We're going to talk about them both, but then more significantly, I think we're going to talk about why they matter. So let me read this passage to you. 1 Corinthians 14. Follow along if you'd like or, or just try to stay with me in the flow of thought. Paul picks up. He says, follow the way of love and eagerly desire spiritual gifts, especially the gift of prophecy. For anyone who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men but to God. Indeed, no one understands him. He utters mysteries with his spirit, but everyone who prophesies speaks to men for their strengthening, encouragement, and comfort. He who speaks in a tongue edifies himself, but he who prophesies edifies the church. I would like every one of you to speak in tongues, but I would rather have you prophesy he who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless he interprets so that the church may be edified. Now, brothers, if I come to you and speak in tongues, what good will I be to you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or word of instruction? Even in the case of lifeless things, think about this. That makes sound like a flute or a harp. How will anyone know what tune is being played unless there is a distinction between the notes? Again, if a trumpet does not sound a clear call, who will get ready for battle? So it is with you. Unless you speak intelligible words with your tongue, how will anyone know what you are saying? You will just be speaking into the air. Undoubtedly, there are all sorts of languages in the world, yet none of them is without meaning. If then I do not grasp the meaning, uh, if, if, uh, excuse me, if then I do not grasp the meaning of what someone is saying, I am a foreigner to the speaker, and he is a foreigner to me. So it is with you. Since you are eager to have spiritual gifts, try to excel in gifts that build up the church. For this reason, anyone who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret what he says. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. So what shall I do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will also pray with my mind. I will sing with my spirit, but I will also sing with my mind. If you are praising God with your spirit, how can one find himself among those who do not understand, say, amen, to your thanksgiving, since he doesn't know what you're saying? You may be giving thanks well enough, but the other is not edified. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than any of you, Paul writes. But in the church, I would rather speak five intelligible words to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Brothers, sisters, 
Stop thinking like kids. In regard to evil, be infants. But in your thinking, be adults. And I will jump ahead. Tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers. Prophecy is for believers, not unbelievers. If the whole church comes together and everyone speaks in tongues, some who do not understand or some unbeliever who comes in will say, you are out of your minds. But if an unbeliever or someone who does not understand comes in while everyone is prophesying, he will be convinced by all that he is a sinner and will be judged by all, and the secrets of his heart will be laid bare, and he will fall down and worship God, exclaiming, God is really among you. It's kind of weird, isn't it? Prophecy and tongues. Not what I would call two topics that we regularly deal with. Oh, there are some of us here that I think wonder about it, are curious about it, have questions about it, maybe have even experienced it or have the gift. But, but most of us, I'm going to guess that it's, it's the other way. That I don't wake up in the morning going, Lord, may I speak in tongues today? I don't think most of us gather here going, Lord, why, why aren't I speaking in tongues today? Likewise, I don't think many of us get up in the morning going, Lord, what prophecy do you have for me this morning? Where is there a prophet in the midst of fellowship of faith where I can get a revelation of the Lord today? It feels distant, doesn't it? Strange. Back then, not really having to do with me. May I submit and encourage you, please stay with me. Because I think this topic of prophecy in tongues has more to do with you than you'd imagine. Now, if you were able to follow with me as I read, it seems pretty clear that Paul is saying one basic thing. There are some gifts that are better than others. It goes completely against everything I've already previously said. It seems to go pre completely, doesn't it? Against everything 1 Corinthians 12 had to say. And yet, Paul seems to say here in chapter 14 that if you are eagerly desiring gifts of God, there are some that are better than others. And it's not just chapter 14. I'm going to jump ahead here, a couple slides, and I want to show you this. Even at the end of chapter 12, Paul says this, eagerly desire the greater gifts. Now, some will try to translate this as, you are eagerly desiring the greater gifts. You're not going to find a single translation that puts it that way. Even it does live in your footnote that way. And I submit to you that the flow of what Paul is saying here in 14 means that this is what it actually should say. Paul says to you, eagerly desire the greater gifts. Which begs the question, which are the greater gifts? And in chapter 14, anyway, he poses two, prophecy 
and tongues and seems to indicate that prophecy is better. Now, I want to break these down to you for today. I want to explain them to you. And I think by explaining them to give you into a window, into a greater field of vision of the gifts God gives and the gifts that he asks us to seek and desire eagerly. But before I go there, I need to situate all of this back with Jesus. Let me take you back to the teachings of Jesus here today. Now, read the Gospels, and you are going to see a refrain echo through the teachings of Jesus a whole heck of a lot. And it basically goes like this. The last will be first, and the first will be last. It goes like this. The proud will be humbled. The humble will be exalted. It goes like this. Whoever wants to be first among you must become last and become servant of all. I think of Jesus celebrating what we call the Last Supper with his disciples. Remember, it's the night he's going to be betrayed. It's the kickstart of the 24-hour event of crucifixion. And you remember what he does? You could read John's Gospel. It's chapter 13 to get the, the deeper story of the conversation that happens there. But the essence of it is this. Jesus gets down as all these dudes are gathered around the table, and he gets down on his knees, and he wraps a towel around his waist, and he gets, it wa- he gets some water, and he starts washing their feet. Gross. He starts washing their feet. Utterly utterly gross. It was like 98 degrees inside in the air conditioning last week. It was horrible. Can you imagine someone walking around in their sweaty sandals all day and then getting down and washing their feet? Can you imagine that 350-pound guy wearing his, like, you know, wife beater tank top with hair coming out of his back and sweating everywhere and then getting down and, like, washing his feet? This is the image that I have of the Last Supper with these guys. I don't know. It's... Welcome to my psyche. (laughs) Whoever wants to be first must be the very last. And Jesus doesn't like, he doesn't just talk a good game. He lives it, he practices it too. And so he starts washing their feet. I think of another time when the disciples are arguing among themselves who are going to be the greatest. And Jesus comes to him and he says, look, i got to tell you something. The Son of Man has not come to be served, but he's come to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Now kind of root this. Keep this in mind. Keep what Jesus says here in mind. Because remember, Paul teaches Jesus. Everything you read by Paul is teaching Jesus. There's a lot of people I know who like to pit Jesus and Paul against each other. Because maybe they don't like something that Paul has to say. Or maybe they kind of find him arrogant or misogynistic or, or, or something else. And so they go, well, I follow the teachings of Jesus. 
We got red letter Bibles to ensure it is so. Can I submit to you that Paul knew Jesus better than any of us ever will? Not just theologically, not just because of his learning. He literally met the guy face to face, was called by him directly, commissioned by him to ministry. No, make no mistake, the longer you study Paul, the longer you'll see Jesus coming up through the pores. Paul teaches Jesus, and Paul is teaching Jesus when he says, eagerly desire the greater gifts. Corinth was a troubled church. Divided over how to make sense of the teachings of Jesus, but the way of Jesus. How to live it. What to think about it. You know what I mean? How to, how to kind of orient their life to it. And it seemed as though if this church could argue and divide over something, they would find it. And one of these instances happens to be gifts. In this church, there were some that were prophesying. In this church, there were some that were speaking in tongues. Which one's better? Which one's greater? Which one is, is, is better evidence of the Spirit of God at work? Which should we elevate and revolve ourselves around and orient our, our, our body and our worship life around? Which should we diminish? Paul speaks into that, and that's where he brings us today. Let me explain the two gifts in detail to you. Prophecy. We hear prophecy, and I bet you kind of run to like fortune telling or, or telling the future in some kind of way, right? It's like I, I get this, view, this, this vision of what's going to happen out then as though fate and destiny are set, and I kind of give that message to you today. May I submit to you that that is fundamentally not what the Bible means by prophecy. Now, to be sure, there are instances in the Bible, Old and New Testament alike, when God does indeed give a prophet a vision of the future to speak today. But at its root, prophecy is something bigger, greater, and more. Prophecy, at its base, most foundational level, is nothing more than communicating a word of the Lord. Period. Prophecy is communicating a word of the Lord. It's delivering a message God wants delivered. And by and far, God is far more concerned with giving you a message about today than what is going to happen in some future day. God is far more concerned with communicating something that has relevance to you now than he does about something to come. Prophecy 
is about being given a message from God in one form or by one means or another to communicate to others. That is prophecy. Now let's talk about tongues. You know, the absolute worst Christian pickup line I ever heard is, I have the gift of tongues. That's completely, think about it. Sometimes it will be translated languages. Okay, maybe. Let's go with it for a little bit, but you're going to see it doesn't quite fit it. There are times, Acts 2 is a great example, where God pours his spirit out among people, and it says they start speaking in other tongues or languages. Tongues, if you will, is a metaphor for a language. And that instance is a language that other people could understand. So in Acts chapter 2, the disciples are gathered together. It's the Jewish holiday of Pentecost. And it says they, they, they feel and sense and see and hear this violent wind coming down from heaven that shakes the place and fire starting to appear and break apart and rest on each of their heads. And as they're anointed by this, this infilling and indwelling and presence of the Spirit of God that's overwhelming them, they start speaking in, in languages that they've never learned and that they previously did not understand. And those who are gathered from every tribe and nation and nationality and language on earth are hearing these disciples of Jesus speak these languages, speak the word of God in languages that they can understand. Because if you can't understand it, how do you know what God has to say? Are you with me? Sometimes... Tongues seem to be that. Anointed by God to speak in another language that someone else can understand. But here in 1 Corinthians 14, it seems different. It seems like it's a different kind of language, a special language, a unique language dare I say, even a heavenly, divine, or angelic language. I think of 1 Corinthians 13, if you were with us last week. How does it begin? Paul goes, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels. If I speak in the tongue of men and of angels, but have not love, I am only a resounding gong and a clanging cymbal, right? It seems to indicate that I can speak by the gift of God in languages of men. But it seems that I can speak in languages of God as well. Some kind of unique utterance, communication. What might sound even like babbling, if you will. When a heart is captured by God in a certain and select way, to communicate with him in some kind of deeper way or more intimate way. We don't witness that very often here, not publicly anyway. 
at Fellowship of Faith. Though certain churches revolve their worship life around this kind of thing. But I can tell you that I've had conversations in my time here at Fellowship of Faith with people who go to Fellowship of Faith and go to Fellowship of Faith still that have experienced this kind of thing. Let me take a moment to note that when 1 Corinthians talks about prophecy and tongues, it's not just talking about gifts that God gave back then. It talks about gifts God continues to give Today, gifts that God has given to some of you. And this tongue thing. I believe that far more of you have experienced this than you realize. I submit to you that there are some of you sitting here who have prayed this way without ever labeling it or identifying it as a gift of tongues. Let me show you what I mean. There's this passage out of Romans that I love where Paul says in the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for. Have you ever felt that way? You are burdened and overflowing and you have so much to gush out to God and you don't even have words to say. Nothing you can say can quite capture that which is within you that you are trying to release to God. Have you been there? I have. Look what he says, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us. And I love this next line. With groans that words cannot express. With groans. With utterances. With that gut-releasing, oh. Have you ever prayed that way? Have you ever ran into your bedroom, hit your knees, you slid into your bed with your hands reached up to God and you're just like, God! And in that one word, so much more was said. Have you ever prayed where you just sighed, heaved, have you ever had these just emotional moments where you're talking to God and more is being said in what is not said than if you were to try to write and articulate in journal every word? Do you know what I mean? Have you ever had that experience May I submit to you that you've experienced what it means to pray in tongues. To speak to God with a special granting by a special gift in a certain kind of way. Imagine for a moment someone getting up and speaking that way, preaching that way, praying that way. Imagine someone getting up and just letting loose this, this outcropping, this flow of what the Spirit of God is doing in them. I know it can kind of be hard for us to imagine in 21st century suburban middle class America where the greatest emotional expression we give is to smile somewhat broadly. 
So imagine even more to see someone moved and lit up, expressing verbally with all kinds of gestures and in all kinds of ways. It would look kind of, shall we say, standoutish, wouldn't it? You, you would notice that kind of thing, wouldn't you? It would seem kind of, shall we say, spectacular, wouldn't it? And if you believe that what was happening was sincere and genuine and true, would it not even seem to indicate that the Spirit of God was alive in that one? We've known it. We've seen it. The evidence is before our eyes. It isn't too many more steps to even start to imagine how we as a body might start to wish and want and desire a gift like that and think that that is a greater evidence of God's spirit in someone's life. An evidence of his moving among us. Apply it to any gift. This is the one that was hitting the Corinthians. It would seem that the greater gifts would be those that were more emotional, more spectacular, more noticeable, more evident. And Paul says, eagerly desire the greater gifts. But then he comes to 1 Corinthians 14 and he says, yes, eagerly desire the greater gifts, Desire prophecy. And prophecy rightly understood. Prophecy, how I've just described it. Prophecy is nothing more than just bringing a word of the Lord. A word of the Lord like, hey, I just want to remind you that God loves you. Hey, Jesus died for your sins. Hey, the Holy Spirit is doing a work in your life. I mean, it may be true, but it's not. Sexy. Is it spectacular? Noticeable? No, how many times do we hear these kinds of things and readily dismiss it? Let me ask you, when I read through 1 Corinthians chapter 14, did your mind wander? Did your eye gaze? 22 verses of prophecy were laid out. But it's just seeming a little too mundane. And yet Paul says it is a greater gift. Why? Not because what God is doing in you is better or worse. Not because what God is giving you is some kind of sign of his level of love or investment in you. No, because the greater gifts, as Paul will put it, the greater gifts, as Jesus will put it, the greater gifts are fundamentally Gifts that serve others. Because fundamentally, the greatest gift you can have is one that does not bring you benefit, but exists and is used for the benefit of others. That is the way 
of Jesus. And that reorients how you look at every single gift. Because the value of the gift can now be defined by what benefit does this have? Not for me, but for the person sitting next to me, the person sitting behind me, the person sitting in front of me, the person I don't even know who's gathering in this body, what benefit does it have for them? Can I ask you, do you think that way? That is how the Spirit is inviting us to think. And it's so hard because we love our moments with God, don't we? Oh, we love them. Have you had those moments when God has taken a hold of you? God has done something in the moment. You know what I mean? We love that spirit wash. When the spirit comes upon us and we emotionally feel it, we sense it, it changes it. Oh, we're living up. Sometimes it happens in a song. Sometimes it happens in a message. Sometimes it happens when we pray. It can come any number of ways, but we come to live for it. We come to seek it. We come to be addicted by it, wanting to feel God and have that personal moment with him. There's a place for it. It can be represented by tongues. A gift for my personal benefit. And make no mistake, those moments are gifts from God. They are gifts from God given to you. Love it, revel in it. But it is not the greater gift. The greater gift is often the far more mundane. The gift marked by the way of love for someone else. The gift marked by sacrifice. The gift marked by doing what is beneficial to another or supporting what is beneficial to another rather than what's in it for me. Imagine if a church were to live that way. If church life was to be oriented around what is best for the other instead of what is in it today for me. I submit the landscape would change. I submit hearts would be changed. I submit that as Paul says at the end of this long extended section of which I've given you a snippet, that the unbeliever who walked in would see it, would be laid bare and say, God is truly among them. Because that is what God does with the greater gifts. And this is how the Holy Spirit works. Not just individually, but collectively. Because while the Holy Spirit is looking to do a work in you, he is also looking to do a work in you. And you will never experience the fullness of the Spirit unless you experience it collectively. God gives you gifts, good ones, really, really good ones. 
He is seeking to do something in you and through you. But his purpose is far more than just you. His greater purpose with you are those around you. Those are the greater gifts. Each of you has a ministry to the body and a mission to the world. Don't deny it. Don't deny it one bit, no matter how mundane your gift might seem. Oh, it will prove to be so essential. Seek those kinds of gifts. Exercise those kinds of gifts. Take those God-given gifts for that greater purpose. and see what he does in your midst.